Hey, now I'm on. Hey, let's go 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you uh, don't have a Bible, the text will be up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things at the top of the mountain of all the lovely, wonderful things that God uses his word for is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him, uh, made sense of by knowing him, defined by knowing him, all those good things. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then just do the little logic problem. Not having a copy that you can be putting your nose into is a problem. It puts you at a disadvantage. So if you don't have one, take that physical one home, home and it'll be, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll count it as a joy. So here's what I want to do this morning. We've got these two young ladies here this morning, uh, Emma and Abby. They're, they've buried themselves as consistent with their personality, as far back as they can get. Right? Um, and I want to take this special occasion just today to speak directly to the two of them. Which means, girls, I'm going to be giving you lots of eye contact. It's going to be awesome. Both of you love being the center of attention it's everything in you, all right? So Emma, Abby, this is your sermon. You're welcome. Um, I know that might feel a little awkward for all the other non-you people in the room, all right? I, I, they're here. You can hear them breathing, all right? Uh, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to y'all, just the two of you, all right? And so at no point in this, morn this morning should anything I say up here be heard by them as some kind of universal truth for everybody, that can't, that can't possibly be a thing, all right? Everything I say up here should never be taken to heart by people who aren't sitting exactly where you're sitting. So as I sat around trying to think through uh, what, what, you know, what kind of springboard to offer to the two of you to, to kind of launch you into the world as these brand new minted adults, um, just a small task, it eventually occurred to me that you don't really need a springboard. I don't, I don't think you need one at all. I think what you need to do is be pointed in the most advantageous direction. Because uh, you see, whether you're the relaxed type or the bullnose go-getter, and both of you are very much the relaxed type, no one has to teach you how to be passionate about things. Nobody. That's already buried deep down inside of you. Both of you have things that kind of stir your soul and stir your heart for, uh, and get, get you fired up for things that you're ready to, I don't know, metaphorically charge through a brick wall for. Each one of you have topics and concerns that if, you were to, if I were to change the subject and talk about those things this morning, you would have all kinds of things to share. You would never do it in front of all these people, but you've got some opinions, all right? So, You've got zeal, you've got energy, and you've got at least a few dreams rolling around in your head about actually changing the world. And so, here's a biblical reality that I think you need to lock in on. That's not there by accident. I am convinced, based on what I see in the Bible, based on what I understand about the world that we're living in, I am thoroughly convinced that God has put that in you on purpose. On purpose. 
See, I think that the Bible teaches us that God has built into each one of you, hardwired, if you want to call it that, a desire to turn things upside down and make the world a better place. God has designed you and shaped you and put things in your life to specifically uh, craft your pathway for an incredibly massive reason. But before I get to that reason, let me throw out a disclaimer, all right? Lest you hear something that I'm not actually saying this morning. Um, Both of you had already had your graduation ceremony, all right? I I wasn't invited to either one of them. I guess my invitation got lost in the mail, all right? but even though I wasn't there, I've, I've done a couple of laps around the sun, and I, I think I can have a pretty solid guess as to the kinds of things that were said through speech form at your graduation ceremony, right? I, I, I wasn't there, I don't know, but I kind of think I can know, right? I think I can go ahead and guess or bet that you heard some kind of speech about a call to greatness for you. Or am I off base on that one? It's what good graduation speech givers do. Just the way that the game is played, right? And the other folks in this room, not named you, have sat through a thousand of those speeches over the course of their days. Scroll through YouTube for a while and you'll come across an endless list of very well-intentioned speeches that call you, to, call you and your peers to go change the world forever. I think that those exalted speeches will ultimately fall flat on their face. I don't think they have the legs to actually pull off anything of eternal value. And I think, unfortunately, what they often leave you with is a burden of failure for not chasing certain types of things. So let me plant my flag in a reality that I sincerely hope that you'll remember for the rest of your life. There is top-shelf honor in God's kingdom for followers of Jesus who day in and day out go to work, pay their bills, faithfully raise their children, support their churches, serve in their communities, and eventually die with dignity. See, the Bible paints the picture that those are the kinds of people that God seems to celebrate when they get to heaven. But here's the subtlety of the fallen world that we live in. Whether you're doing something that the world would describe as successful or you're doing something that the world would describe as ho-hum, it is entirely possible to do either of those two things in a way that accomplishes greatness. And it's entirely possible to do either of those two things in a way that does absolutely nothing but make much of yourself. And hear me. That kind of life will never get the title of great in God's kingdom. It's not what he's going to celebrate. It's not what he's going to exalt. He's promised the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that in the grand scheme of things, sometimes what you do is actually way less important than how you do it. And I'll go ahead and tip my cards a little bit. What I'm really doing here this morning is warning you not to not to let your passion, that hardwired, God-breathed, wonderful thing that he put in you, your passion and zeal for awesome things, to not let it be stolen away by cheaper lovers and by cheaper things. And I use the word cheaper on purpose. It's an intentional word choice for me. Um, 
I'm, I'm not using it the way that the world around us tends to use it, though. Uh, I'm not referring to the cost of things. I'm, re- I'm referring to the value of things. Those are not the same. Right? The more mature you get in, in life, the more you'll come to understand that there's a difference between the cost of something and the value of something. Things can be incredibly expensive that have no real value. Insanely expensive. That can be true of material things like houses and cars and clothes, but it can also be true of immaterial things, things that we hunger for and long for and go chasing after, things we we pour out great time and energy and resources to try to get for ourselves but still have no real end value of their own. Let me give you an example. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me give you an example. Let's let's say you, you really wanted the house, right? Like that nice house. Whatever your picture of the good house is. Maybe it looks exactly like the one you grew up in. Maybe it looks nothing like the one you grew up in. That house you're chasing after shifts from just being a house into some kind of status symbol. That that once you get it, then you'll finally have arrived. Well, you're not really chasing after the material thing there. What you're chasing after is the attention that comes with the house. It's the attention and the prestige and the oohs and ahs from your friends and neighbors that you really long for. And you may very well get it. There's a lot of people in this room that have really nice houses. They, they did well. You may very well get it. We live in a world where working harder than everybody else around you will often get you ahead in life. It's true. It will often give you access to the very things that you want, but you'll likely, at least some of the time, have to give up things of actual value in order to get it. You might have to sacrifice time with those you love and have been called to serve. You might have to go against principles that you decided pretty early on you, that were going to define you. Simple trade, right? Sometimes it flows off of our hands so easily. See, I think you can step into any graduation ceremony in the U.S. over the last couple of weeks and over the weeks to come and hear a message about chasing after great things. It's what good graduation speech givers do. But those great things are almost always going to be exclusively defined in the way that the world we live in tries to define great things. And so the question emerges, does the follower of Jesus have a different scale of measurement? What great things should Jesus' followers chase after? This is where our text for the morning enters enters into the picture. 2 Corinthians 4. Corinth, Greece was a unique place in the ancient world. Um, It was a port city with lots of commerce and lots of incredible lineage of education. They prided themselves on rhetoric. They prided themselves on all kinds of lovely things. Uh, And it means that folks in Corinth prided themselves on understanding how the world worked and and their ability to articulate how the world worked. And, And they also had pretty much unlimited access to whatever goods they wanted. It was coming in one port and out the, out the other. Everything they wanted was at their fingertips. That's a cool place to live. And because of the culture of this city, he was kind of young, and they were also a little cocky about it. It's just also kind of how the world works. They had a sort of a swagger to them. 
The Apostle Paul had an intimate relationship with the church in, in Corinth. He spent a ton of time there. He was the pastor there for a while, but after he moved on from there to plant other churches, he wrote a few letters back and forth to them to correct some major kind of doctrinal issues and sin issues that popped up. And so in the two letters that we have from him, First and Second Corinthians, uh, his purpose is to correct sin, yes. But he does so by showing them how God has intentionally made the wisdom of his kingdom upside down from the wisdom of this world. He's done it that way on purpose. The people that made up his church had a lot of wrong ideas about what it meant to be successful in the world. Those ideas got imported from all kinds of places. And make no mistake, those, those ideas would likely gain them all kinds of notoriety in the, in the city they're running around with. It would gain them all kinds of notoriety from their non-Christian neighbors. Everybody would applaud them for chasing after those types of wisdoms. But Paul wants considerably more for them than what the world can offer. He loves them and he wants good for them. And so he goes out of his way to lift the level of their eyes to something that's successful, not on a worldly scale, but actually on an eternal scale. And in verse 16 of chapter 4, he says this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. So Paul's pretty clear here. There, there is nothing Nothing this side of heaven that's not wasting away, period. Like, run down the list however long you want to. Think of all the things that you can think of, all the things that you can build, all the things that you can gather, all the things that you can long for but are always just out of your reach. Every ounce of it has an expiration date. Ultimately end up in a trash heap one day. Whatever you're daydreaming about finally fulfilling you, maybe, maybe you even got it sitting in your Amazon wish list right now. That item will end up rotting away in a landfill one day. Whether it's this time next year or 200 years from now, everything you see around you has a shelf life. Everything. Does that mean that owning the trinket is sinful? No. Not in the least, but the hope and identity that you place in it, yeah, that could, that could be. That could be sinful. So Paul says here, don't cling to things that are wasting away. It's a bad investment. It'll fail you. But he keeps this thought going on into the next chapter. Look at chapter 5. Verse 1, it says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we, that, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right, so I know that's two paragraphs. There's a ton in there. We could spend weeks talking about all of it, uh, but... uh, It's a lot of information to process, but let me try to summarize in my own words what I think Paul is saying here. He's saying that our own bodies are also in the category of things that have a shelf life. So when you make the list of everything around you, everything you can build, everything you can gather, everything you can long for, it's all got an expiration date. Our bodies are on that list too. It says that our own bodies are also in the category of things that are wasting away. Happy graduation, girls. <laughs> now, here's the problem with reading that um, in a sermon dedicated to a couple of high school seniors. You are in literally the worst place in your life to hear that. Because you think you're awesome right now. Right? You feel the prettiest, you feel the strongest, you feel the most in shape. You got a little bit of invincibility coursing through your veins. But take a second to look around the room at those of us who used to feel the exact same way as you did. There's a, lot, there's a lot of gray hair in this room. An incalculable number of wrinkles. They don't don't feel invincible anymore. It's because time is a mightier king than work ethic. You can do all kinds of things to slow down the process of aging, and you probably, just as good stewards of your body, ought to do those things, but your day is coming. You cannot stop it. It may feel like forever away from now, but the clock's ticking. And it always gets here before you're ready. Sneaky that way. Your body has a shelf life. And Paul says that we will all one day stand before God and have to give an account for what we did with the body he chose to give us. That ought to be daunting. But it's the next part where this really begins to get interesting for our purposes today. Look at verse 11. Therefore, Call time out there. (laughs) I only bring this up because it's important, right? Paul's about to argue for something that is massively important for your future, and it's based on everything he just said. All this reality about the world wasting away and even our bodies wasting away, therefore, because this is true, therefore, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13, for if if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. 
And he died for all that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right, so Paul says... Because we're on the clock, and because we're running out of time, and because we will one day stand to give an account to the great judge and show our work, and because of the amazing reality uh, of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, because of the great gift of grace that Jesus has given us, Paul says that it's actually quite ridiculous to do anything but do things for him. I mean, think about it. What else? What else would you choose? If Paul is right about these realities, there's only really a couple of other options on the table. One is to spend your life trying to build something that despite your best efforts, time will eventually eat away. Another option is to spend your life trying to build something that will then be judged by the king who called you to something else. That seems unwise. Third option is to spend your entire life trying to build something that fails to comprehend just how massive the gift Jesus gave you is. So which route you want to run? We can also, though, I think look at this in an incredibly positive angle, though. And those of you who truly understand the gospel I think, I think you know what I'm talking about. When you, when you legitimately get what God has done, like when you, when you rightly understand the gospel, when you rightly understand grace, when you rightly understand what your sin was owed and how he fixed that problem, living for him is such an easy thing to do. It's an incredibly easy thing to do. Don't you know what happened on the cross? Don't you, don't you know what he did for me? And so whatever Jesus asks for, it's, it's, it's as good as done. Like, he wants it? Okay, he can have it. It's his. The love of Christ compels me, Paul says. But he keeps going in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer, or no, excuse me, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting uh, their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, so in order to properly uh, unpack all that, we'd need weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and so I don't have that kind of time today. All right. All right. So let me try to unpack for you what theologians call the meta narrative of the Bible in just a couple of minutes. All right. The story of the Bible starts out with perfection in the garden. We on the same page about that? It starts out with perfection in the garden. It starts with a created man being placed in a perfect created world and being given the keys to the kingdom. Not a bad way to spend a day. All right. For all the things that we can hope and dream for, that one's got us beat. 
This man lives in perfect rhythm and relationship with, uh, between he and God. He lives in perfect rhythm and relationship between he and his spouse and between he and the rest of creation, right? And it's a good story. It's a real good story. The problem is that story doesn't last for very long, right? Just a couple of chapters in, sin enters into the world through man's disobedience, and it fractures everything. All the stuff gets broke, and I truly mean everything. The rhythm becomes disjointed, and those relationships become animosity, and nothing that man tries to do to fix the problem that he made ever makes the problem any better. It always makes the problem worse. We've been trying for a few millennia now to fix ourselves. There's a reason why the biggest section of a bookstore is always the self-help section. We know we got a problem. We see how disjointed this place is but we're powerless to actually do anything about it. There's a reason that people chase after fulfillment through relationships and religion and chemical distractions. But despite our best efforts, those things never seem to work for very long because even our very best attempt on our very best day is always stained by brokenness and sin. The fracture's too big. We need the help of someone outside of the fracture to fix it for us. And this is where Jesus steps in, right? God himself steps onto the scene and does what no one else can do. He makes a way where there is no way. Jesus bridges the gap between God and man through his sinless life and his sacrificial death on the cross. How? Because in his death, Jesus pays the debt that you and I owe for, the tr- for our trespasses and sins, and he gives us his righteousness in return. And so, those who have placed their trust in Jesus' work on, on their behalf, man, they, they now stand before the Father's truly innocent. Verse 17 is clear you are a new creation, the old has passed away, and the new has come. And on the surface, that seems like it's got to be the most lopsided trade in all of the the history of the universe, right? Like, what could ever be a worse trade? So what's what's in it for God? Like, why why would he do that? Well, the answer is his glory. He does it for his glory. In the very same chapter of the Bible that we see everything break because of our sin, Genesis 3, God also promises that everything will one day be restored. He is God and there is nothing that can be stolen away from him. What was lost in the garden in Genesis 3 is being forever reconciled and redeemed. What was fractured in the fall is being forever repaired and rectified. And The Bible teaches that the cosmos will forever resound with the chorus, look what our God has done. Is the greatest story in the entire universe, and it's a story that all other stories wish they could be, take their cues from, and unwillingly stolen their themes from. Every great hero story is a shadow of the great hero story, where Jesus, the knight in shining armor, comes to the rescue and vanquishes the great enemy and saves the day when all hope is lost. Every great love story is a shadow of the great love story where Jesus, the steadfast lover, comes and lays down his life to purchase freedom for his beloved out of bondage. Don't we all long for that final battle? 
I know I do. We long for that happily ever after because God has actually buried that story deeply in our hearts. We've been hardwired for it. But here's where it gets truly amazing. See, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, this isn't just some really good story playing out for you and I to merely watch happen. We're not bystanders here. It's a story that God has invited you and I to actually play a role in. We are not sitting on the sidelines. We're in the game. He's invited you and I, if you know him, to play a part in reconciling all of the broken things in this world back to himself. He's invited you and I to play a role in his great story of reconciling and redeeming and restoring all the things. Now, does that mean that the only fulfilling life for you is to become church leaders and missionaries? No. No. Because the grand story of Jesus reconciling all things in this world does not simply play out within the walls of the church building and among some tribe and and a remote African village. Those are good things to be invested in. But Jesus is also doing more than that. It definitely includes those places, and maybe God might call you, you one day to do those things. But make no mistake, Jesus is using you in his work to redeem all things, and that includes all the other places. It plays out as you go to work day in and day out with eternity in mind. It plays out as you faithfully raise your kids with eternity in mind. It plays out as you support your church family with eternity in mind. It plays out as you serve your community with eternity in mind. And it plays out as you eventually die with dignity with eternity in mind. Paul calls you an ambassador for Christ. See, God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to use you in his great redemption plan. And you can, you can get a good sense of how correct your view of God is this morning by simply asking the question, is he big enough to account for the real you in that great redemption plan? Think he's given you specific passions on purpose? Think he's given you specific talents and experiences on purpose? Think he's directed you to go to the school that you're going to on purpose? Is he smart like that? Is he good like that? You've got talents and passions. Could it be that every talent and passion in you was put there on purpose by God who wants to use you for his own glory? You've got weaknesses and insecurities. Could it be that every weakness and insecurity in you was actually put there on purpose by God because to cause you to kind of lean into him as you do the things he's called you to do? Is he good like that as well? Does he care for you that deep? Abby, Emma, how big is your view of God this morning? Because I promise you, it will affect your next step. It'll, it'll affect your next several years of steps. More often than not, the most godly life is simply to repent of sin and take the next natural step in front of you. For you, you both chosen college. Awesome. Okay? Will there be a season he calls you to some wild step of faith? Yeah, yeah, that's probably coming down the pipe for you sometime. 
Will there be seasons when you're not sure what that step is supposed to be? Yeah, there's definitely going to be some of those seasons too. There's a few questions that you can settle in your own mind today before you get to those moments that I think will change how you approach them. Number one, do you trust that God is good? I know you've heard that your entire life. Both of you have grown up in church. Do you actually trust that he is? Secondly, do you trust that he's in control? Again, something you've heard. You willing to bank your life on it? And thirdly, and I think most importantly, can you trust his character? Listen, if you know the answer to those three questions, the rest of a life of following Jesus isn't actually that complicated. How, how many times in the last month has somebody asked you what you're going to do when you grow up? <laughs> and you have no idea what to tell them. <laughs> I was in the same position when I was your age. I turned out okay. <laughs> okay, not everybody agrees. Listen, at the end of the day, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. And so as long as you remember where the eternal finish line is, you go do you. It's less complicated than people make it. It's way less complicated than people try to make it. Keep a kingdom, keep a kingdom of God reality in mind as you go do what God made you good at and go do what God made you passionate about. Walk in obedience to the simple things he's called you to and then watch how he uses that for your good and for his glory. Figure out how those things intersect with your dual calls to pursue him deeply and to make disciples of all nations. And man, you're gold. You can't miss when you're aiming for those things. When you find that groove, I don't think there's a wrong way to do life. So when you get asked the what do you want to be when you grow up question for the thousandth time this month, as a follower of Jesus, with 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 in your back pocket, I think you can legitimately respond by saying, God is going to use me to change the world. I don't know what that looks like yet. But he's good. And then go do that. Go do exactly that. I'm pretty confident you can. The Bible also seems to indicate here that anything less than that would be the kingdom version of a wasted life. So how, how do we respond to God this morning, right? We to talk to everybody now. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to repent of sin and press into God. It's the rhythm what we have every single week. And I think you do that this week by being intentional to grow in your trust of who he is and what he's done for you. Because if those things are locked down, everything else is just flexible. Those two realities will affect who you are and what you chase after in this world more than anything else. Everything else is style. But listen, I think followers of Jesus also carry the responsibility to turn around and disciple others in this reality too. Who is God putting in your pathway this week that needs the dots connected, all right, as to how the world actually works? Who needs to hear 
that there are eternal realities to live for and work for rather than just the temporary fluff that's going to die one day. Perhaps the eternal plan of God is to use you to draw them into a kingdom that will never, ever end. You've got something better than what this world can offer. When are you going to give it to them? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have a couple, I'll be down front if you want to talk about anything. What about if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can, Can you respond? Absolutely yes. I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word this morning by meeting Jesus. Uh, Before you can rest in the freedom of who God has made you to be, you need to be first rightly reconciled to him. That's how that works. There there is no rest until you actually are are in right relationship with him. And so uh, we talked a minute ago about this great story of the universe playing out around us. And a major piece of that story is that we are separated from God because of our sin. Right? The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from him, and that because of that separation, we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls it all kinds of things, but sometimes it calls it God's wrath. Not a fun thing to, to experience, I wouldn't guess. But the Bible also teaches that God loves us with, loves us with a great love. And that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through Christ by his grace. Jesus came, he put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He lived in the life that I can't live and you can't live. And he died on a cross in order to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a, as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And all those who call on him as Savior and Lord, trust his work on their behalf. He reconciles to himself. He saves them. Maybe you're here today and you want that. I'd love to talk to you. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's uh, by finally stepping forward to join our church family. You've been here for a while. God's called you here. It's clear. Time to take that step. Let's go. Let's talk about it. Or maybe you've been here for a while and uh, you've been following Jesus for a while. You're pretty sure you've done these things about trusting in him and following him as Savior and Lord. But you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized. That's that's something that needs to happen. We can fix that. Let's talk about that too. I know when a baptism is coming up pretty quick. It's next week. Or maybe you're here this morning and you, you feel like God's calling you to go be an ambassador for him in some faraway place. you got a lot of questions about what, it, what those steps look like. Man, I'd love to talk to you about that too. In fact, it, right just under hearing about some people chasing after God through the scriptures is the best part of my week. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for these two young ladies. Thank you for the family legacies they've had here. Thank you for all the years and experiences we've had to pour into them and try to disciple them, but adults are going to have to adult. So would you fill them with yourself? Show yourself near. Prove yourself good. And change their world because of it. 
Don't let them settle for things that will fail them and things that will ultimately end up in a trash heap somewhere, material or immaterial. But God, we know that you want to use them for incredibly wonderful, eternity-changing kinds of things. Maybe it's, maybe it's just that a roommate finally learns what eternity is. Or a friend. Or maybe they get to serve in some capacity. I don't, I don't know. You've gifted them in each of their individual ways, and we're so thankful for how you made them. But also, it's time to take new steps. So give them grace. Send them out well. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call men and women into your kingdom today? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.